welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I am Meg, and my life coach, Connie, is going to tell us all about the monster of Florence. But before she does that, if you would like to start a podcast, you should go to Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com slash pricing and enter in the code gruesome with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. And here's why. Because you get an in-browser, easy-to-record solution. And if you want to start one, it's the easiest way to do it. It really is the easiest way. We'll give you more details later. And you guys know. You guys have been signing up. We see it. We see you. So hey, tell, tell me what's going on tonight. So trigger warning, as usual, sheer brutality, your guys' favorite, crimes that are extremely sexual in nature. Um, this is a rough one. I would just tell you if you don't you don't like it, this is this this may not be a case for everybody, as I have said so many times before. Do you think some people hear these and they're like, this is a challenge? Like mm-hmm. that's how I am. Whenever someone's like, this is rough, you and might I'm like, not be we'll able to see. handle it. We'll see. So London has Jack the Ripper. The United States has the Zodiac Killer. And a familiar case to the gruesome gang, one of my most favorite cases that Meg has covered, the Texarkana Phantom Slayer. And Florence, Italy has the monster of Florence. All murders taking place late at night, all murderers terrorizing their respective areas for long periods of time, and with the possible exception of the Zodiac Killer, have all escaped prosecution for their crimes. Florence, Italy, an area known for its rich culture and beautiful scenery, the Italian people known for being so rich in love, close with their family, and generally pretty welcoming, have been haunted by a man known as the Monster of Florence. And yes, I know that I said that these cases remain unsolved due to the sexual nature and a, por- and a portion of these crimes. It is the very common belief that a male is responsible for these murders. So let's get to so it. So we don't know who it is. This is an unsolved Many Ugh. unsolved cases. I'm giving you that heads up. You and- know I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the end, we'll talk about some. I don't want to give it. I don't want to give too much. So we'll talk okay, about okay. that more at the end. That's fine. Go ahead. On a moonless night, September 14th, 1974. The moonless part is very important. Stefania Patini and Pascale Gentilcore parked in the countryside so that they could have some time to be intimate. Stefania was 18, Pascal 19. They parked right outside of Borgo San Lorenzo in the Magello area just outside of Florence. The couple had been dating for a while and they actually frequented this area pretty often. And (laughs) this isn't something that's uncommon. So there are going to be some similarities tonight that you're going to notice Meg between the monster of Florence and the Texarkana Phantom Slayer. Um, One of the biggest similarities being that both of these murderers targeted people who were spending time at the equivalent of what we consider a lover's lane here in the States. They were necking. 
but not like naked, I, neck in. Well, naked. <laughs> but like I said, this isn't something that's uncommon. It, it isn't uncommon for kids, adults, teens in Italy and in Italian families to live with their parents until after they get married. And it's not always a financial thing. Italian families are extremely close-knit, and sometimes, even after college, housing is very expensive, and it just makes sense to move back with, like, move back in with your parents. And I'll be honest, I really think that, I wish that that ideology was more prevalent here, because I don't ever want our kids to think, like, it's a bad thing to have to move back home with us. To me, it's kind of weird that it doesn't happen more often. It's like... In America, a lot of parents just are like, okay, college is here. You're an adult. Go Go to the real world. Which, if that, if you are able to make it work and that was your, like, good Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. I wasn't. I, no. (laughs) But if you, if you went off to college and finished college and got a job and became a grown up and had no issues, like, gold trophy, gold stars for you. Snap, snap, snaps. Um, it's not uncommon for men and women in Italy to live with their parents until their 30s. And honestly, that's the vibe I'm kind of going for in my life. Pascal was shot five times at close range. They were ambushed. Um, he was shot once in the heart and four times at other places in the body. Stefania was then shot four times, but none of her shots were fatal. The man who ambushed them from the bushes then walks to the passenger side of the car and drags her from the car to behind the car. He pulls out a knife and begins a series of horrific attacks that would result in over 96 stab wounds. Oh, no. The first three stab wounds would prove to be the fatal. One of those first three would prove to be the fatal wound that Stefania would succumb to. The other 93 stab wounds were mostly superficial, focusing on her pelvic region and her breasts. They were carried out with such precision that it was almost like a doctor or a butcher had made the wounds. He grabbed her necklace that was around her neck, and it was one that was immediately noticed that she wasn't wearing because she wore it every day. Prior to fleeing the scene, the murderer violated her corpse with a grapevine that Ew. he left inside of her to f- further humiliate her after her death. So they were cuts or stabs? Like, you know, like, they weren't deep. They're just like, tss, tss. I mean, you can't really, no one else is going to be able to see me. They're like, they were super, they were superficial stab wounds. Okay, but so they like, were just not the knife all that, the way. Yeah, the knife that was used, um was very specific. It had like a little hook on the end. Okay. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. Um, after the murderer um, violated her with this grapevine, he left it inside of her to further humiliate her. He walked back around to the driver's side and stabbed Pascal three times post-mortem. It's almost like he wanted to ensure that there was no chance that he had survived. Their bodies would be found the very next day, and her purse was found nearby. But her wallet and her money were still with the things that were dumped on the ground. It was almost like he was just searching for another trophy to take with him. Naturally, this is a terrifying scene for the investigators to encounter. And what is eerie is a few days prior to her death, Stefania had casually mentioned to a couple of her friends that she had a strange encounter with a man 
She didn't go into detail. She didn't say what happened. But the timing proved to be pretty odd. And this isn't the first time that someone would say, you know, I really had kind of a weird run-in. Like creepy weird? Creepy weird. Okay. The case would go unsolved because with the exception of the casings that were left at the crime scene, there was no other evidence left behind. The casings, however, would prove to be a vital piece of evidence throughout this case and the ones that followed. The casings were from a Winchester Series H bullet shot from a 22 Beretta. This specific bullet hadn't been manufactured since 1968. This is was hoarding it. This is very important. Again, remember that. The area of Florence was quiet for seven years. Seven years later, once again, another moonless night in summer, June 6, 1981, Carmela Di Nuccio and Giovanni Faggi were parked on a dirt road outside of Florence in the area of Scandici. The couple, 21 and 30 respectively, had just finished a date night. They'd went out for gelato, hot summer night. So they decided to pull over and have some alone time before they went home. In the dark of night, a figure emerged and fired three shots into the car. Giovanni was shot once in the heart, once in the lung, and once in the head. Carmela was shot five times. The fatal shot was a point-blank shot to the chest. After Carmela was shot, the man removed her from the car and carried her 12 meters down to an embankment. He cut her jeans from the bottom of her pants legs all the way up to her belt where he proceeded, and this is extremely graphic and I'm so sorry, guys. He proceeded to remove her entire pubic area. And yes, I literally removed. No. Yeah. Once again, her purse was opened and scattered. Only this time, her necklace was left on. And it is uncertain if he took anything else, but her money and wallet, they were still right there at the scene. So police brought in an investigative reporter, Mario Spezzi. He was brought in to report on the case. So like word could get out what was going on. And so that hopefully information would come in and try to help. Maybe they could solve the case. What became painstakingly clear is that this was not another isolated crime. And in fact, the double homicide of Stefania and Pascal was not an isolated crime either. The same Winchester Series H casings were found at the crime scene. The same gun was used. And it went further to determine by the casings that these casings literally came from the same box of bullets from the 1974 murders as well. So the 1968 bullets of the 1974 killings and the 1981 killings. Correct. Same box. Hmm. So this is when police turned their attention to their first, it's a literal group of suspects. Through the articles written by Mario Spezzi, he discovered that there was an entire subculture living in the hills of Florence in the Tuscany countryside. There were groups of men who I'm going to say this and I don't want anyone to come at me because this is not, I'm literally just, this is what I read. And then these men called themselves Indians because they lived in tribes. We know that is not politically correct. They are not from India. The term that is used here in America, that's not even like an appropriate term to call people unless they are, you know, from India. Um, So I'm not going to use that term because it's very disrespectful and 
considering why they were living in the hills, that's a very gross term even, to use. Even more so. Yes. So a voyeur is a person who gains sexual pleasure from watching others when they are naked or engaged in sexual activity. And that's what these men were. There were groups of voyeurs who lived in these little tribes and they would just watch people who came to these lover la- lovers lane areas to like do whatever they did there. They, they lived had- out there all the time? Yes. They had their own areas they were allowed to go to, like territories. Some of them had high-tech equipment like night vision goggles and microphones to listen. Yeah. Because like I said, it was not uncommon for couples to go to these things. It's not like, you know, here where every once in a while, like, this is something. They live at, what you're saying. They live with their parents. parents, So they go out to do this. I got you. Which I get that. Like, I would be like, hey, (laughs) we got to go. Let's go. Sometimes I feel like that if you just have too many kids at the house. <laughs> Mario Spezzi was reporting on these crimes literally every day. In one month, he had almost 60 articles about this. He was the first person to dub the murderer a serial killer, and he gave the name the Monster of Florence. A tip came in that there was a local voyeur who had talked about the murders with his wife before they were even publicized. So police wasted no time. They arrested Enzo Spalletti, and he spent three months in a preventative prison, which is like holding a person to prevent further crimes taking place. Like a long-term holding cell? Mm -hmm. Okay. Pretty much the police had nothing to go on, and they they wanted a chance to like give the public something like in terms of advancement for the case. He refused to acknowledge what his car was doing in the area because a witness came forward and claimed to see around the areas where the murders took place. But he really didn't want to admit what he was actually doing there. And that's because he was being voyeur, being gross in the area. Um, But allegedly, while he was in custody, his wife received a phone call that told her to tell her husband Enzo not to say anything and that he would be released soon. And apparently it was from the monster of Florence himself. What? He just like calls him up. He's like, just tell him not to say anything. Don't worry. I've got it. Yeah, pretty much. Does that give you like, he's a cop vibes? (laughs) I'll take that look as I I slowly (laughs) sip my drink. Because in normal circumstances, Without the evidence that I'm going to produce later, I would say you're absolutely right. That That's what I would believe. But there's a wrench that gets thrown in where you're like, what? Uh, wrenches. Wrench. So whether or not the call came in, the suspicion was right because while Enzo Spalletti was in custody on Thursday, October 22nd, 1981, 24-year-old Susanna Camby and 26-year-old Stefano Baldi parked on a country road in Calizano, just outside of Florence, at about 10 o'clock. Police believe that the couple had a sudden desire for some alone time because this is not an area where the couple frequently spent time to park. Their bodies were found the next morning with Stefano outside of the car after being shot multiple times in just his shirt and underwear. Susanna, like prior victims, was carried to a nearby area after she was shot multiple times. 
Susanna also had her pubic region removed post-mortem, and again, her purse was dumped and belongings scattered, but there was no wallet, no money stolen. What was different about this case like than the prior murders is they had all taken place in the summer. Um, they had taken place on Saturday nights. Um, so it was almost like the murderer was taunting police for having Enzo Spalletti in custody. Um, it also was believed that these murders were that these two murders were rushed in the planning stages because all of the other murders had taken place on moonless Saturday nights. But this was a very well lit by the moon standards Thursday night. Also, like they're the first ones were seven years apart. Mm-hmm. And now they're just a couple of months apart. Exactly. Uh, but once again, that same 22 Beretta was used. The same bullets from the same box were also used. This scene brought also brought something that none of the other scenes had produced, um, evidence about the killer himself. In the mud, police found a size 44 boot print, which is the equivalent of like a size 10 and a half here in the U.S., So now police were kind of starting to put an idea together of the stature of this suspect. Now, during this time, Mario Spezzi was writing articles, like I said, almost daily regarding the murders. He would use his platform to squash rumors and speculation, and he would do his best to point readers back to like real evidence that was at hand. He would use the research that he was conducting to give information on other suspects or who he thought could be possible suspects. At one point, there was a priest who was a suspect because I guess he had a fetish for spending time with sex workers and paying them money to let him shave their pubic hair. Oh, okay. Yes. That was Do a very, you. yeah. It's a very specific It's a very specific fetish. thing. The monster of Florence retreated to his normal summer pattern on the once again Moonless Saturday night on June 19th, 1982. On this night, 19-year-old Antonella Miglarini and Paolo Mandari were parked just off of a provincial street near some bushes in Bacciano, just south of Florence. Antonella was terrified of the monster of Florence, so she didn't want to go anywhere rule out of roll. Our favorite word. Rural. Rural. Out of fear, she would become one of the next targets. The area that they were in was so easily seen that some of their friends would later come forward to like clear up the timeline because they were able to pinpoint times that they drove past and could see the couple doing their thing from their car as they drove by. Whoa. Personal. She was like... I do not want to go into the darkness. And he was like, what about right here? (laughs) I would rather let people watch. Yeah. Which is fair. Honestly, very fair. That's a very fair statement. In the circumstances. Yeah. Why not? Um, For the first time since the murderer was terrorizing the area, this case allowed um, the victim was able to make an attempt at getting away. All of the other victims had been quickly ambushed and there was no chance or time to try to make an escape. But Paolo was able to actually start the car and put it in reverse to try to escape, but he was shot in the process. He was able to get the car across the street, but his assailant followed him and shot out both the headlights and then delivered fatal shots to Antonella 
and to the assailant's belief, Paolo. Due to the access of this road by passerbyers um, and Paolo being the badass that he is to try to escape, the assailant was rattled because this was the first time where the woman wasn't violated after her death. There were no stab wounds, no mutilation. The man took off, believing that he had killed Paolo during the process, but a car actually stopped pretty quickly after the attack because that they they saw the car was like backed into a ditch on the side of the road yeah. and they were able to get help for Paolo. This was the first time that one of the monster of Florence that the monster of Florence had a victim that was taken to the hospital alive. Now unfortunately, even though he was still breathing when he got to the hospital, he died shortly after arrival. Oof, that sucks. But the prosecutor Sylvia Della Monica, she decided to use the fact that he made it to the hospital to try and taunt or like lure the monster of Florence out by saying that Paolo was able to say a few words regarding who murdered him and Antonella, who tried to murder him and Antonella. It is widely believed that this was a turning point in the investigation because 12 days later, an envelope arrived at the Carabinieri. I know I said that one wrong. I've been doing so well, but that's the only one that I have like highlighted in red. Like that's a tough one. It's very Zodiac Killer-esque, you know. But inside the envelope, there was a newspaper clipping with an article from the summer of 1968 about two lovers who had been shot in a parked car in Lastra Asigna. On top of the clipping, someone had written, why don't you take another look at this case? So, oh, okay. Why so, don't we? Why don't we? Because once again, Antonella and Paolo, same bullet, same gun, same everything. So 68 and 71 aren't that far apart from each other. Well, 68 and 74. Oh, 74. Sorry, that raises 81. Okay. Still, that's... Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it so far in someone's, you know, memory that they weren't like, hey, didn't this just happen a couple of years ago? Well, I'll I'll I think the sh- the brutality and the how ha- there was no mutilation or anything in the first case. So, oh, OK. And so- I'll and give me a second, Meg, and I'll tell you. I'm exactly sorry. Why. I let you know, I like to ask questions. <laughs> You're in. I'm invested. <laughs> So this case was given a second look because actually Stefano Mele was currently serving a prison sentence for the murders. The police were able to look at the casings from the like the evidence that was recovered and they discovered that the cases matched the very same 22 Beretta. And the casings were from the same bullets, once again from the very same damn box. How many bullets were in this box? Which, so I wondered that and I looked and apparently you can buy, I'm not a gun connoisseur or an ammo connoisseur. This should have been a question I asked your dad. (laughs) How many bullets? But I guess bullets can be bought in boxes of various assorted sizes. So it is not uncommon. Like maybe it was like a big box. Like a hundred or like 200 or something. Police had believed that this was just the case of a husband's jealous rage of finding that his wife was having an affair. But there was something that always bothered the police about the case. You see, 
When Antonio Lobianco and Barbara Lochi were gunned down in their car, Barbara and Stefano's six-year-old son was in the backseat sleeping. Yep, you heard uh, that right. What? Barbara, yeah, Barbara. And and she, okay, and she Bar- was having an affair, right? Mm-hmm. Ugh, not cool. Their six-year-old son, Natalino, was sleeping in the back seat. Following the murders, the assailant realized, like, oh, shit, there's a kid back there. So what does he do? What do you think he did? Uh, I don't know. I want to say he didn't shoot the kid, but... No, I would have put a trigger warning for child crimes. Yeah, so ran away? He took the kid, put him over his shoulder walked him a mile down the road, singing him songs. When he got to a nearby house, the boy wasn't tall enough to ring the doorbell. So he rang the doorbell for the kid and just kind of bolted off. A man came to the door and the boy told him to let him in because he was tired. His dad was homesick and he would also need to take him to his house because his mom and uncle had been killed. His uncle? I think it... I have so thoughts, like a term like, of endearment, maybe. Yeah, I was thinking it was like maybe a family friend or like someone he was like familiar with. I don't think it was a situation where the mom was like, "This is your uncle." Poor kid. Like, sounds like he did pretty well, but that's mm-hmm. crazy. Well, when he was interviewed a few times later, his story kept changing, and he said that I actually walked to the house by myself, but police were. Because it was like a mile through the woods that he would have had to walk. And police never believed that because of his age, the time of night, and the fact that the kid was barefoot. And there wasn't evidence that he had been like walking through the woods barefoot. And apparently Stefano Mele had reported to the, or apparently Stefan, oh my gosh. Apparently, Stefano Mele had admitted to the crimes saying that he had tossed the gun in the woods when he left. But there were reports and investigation that Barbara's infidelity wasn't necessarily a secret. It was something that Stefano wasn't really even upset by. Allegedly, she was also involved in a relationship with three brothers. Get it. Mm-hmm. Get it. Yeah. Um, so he admitted to it and they were just like, all right. Uh-huh. It was Sounds a kind good. of dry. Like, yeah, you, of course you did it. Like, here's this your wife. easy. Hmm. Lame. Francesco, Salvatore, and Giovanni Vinci had all once been lovers of Barbara Locci. Therefore, police sus- like suspected that they had enough of a reason to not only kill Locci, but also to have a vendetta against all women. Like, you moved on from all three of us? Mm-hmm. I think. And even though Stefano said that he threw the gun, it had never been recovered. And I should add that I've read reports that um, Stefano had a learning disability. So it was unlikely that he premeditated this like entire elaborate murder. Yeah. But he admitted to it and they were like, yeah, you're right. Okay, here you go. And there, and there were like reports that had came in about these three brothers, but I mean, you have a man who admitted to the murders, you know? Yeah. And like I said, the gun was never recovered. So So did he get out? Like, did they let him out? Yeah. Stefano had been in prison, so there was no way that he had committed these recent crimes that had been committed with the same gun that 
Barbara and her lover had been murdered with. So he was released. Police started investigating the brothers more closely, and it seemed like maybe the prosecutor's trick to lure out the, like to taunt the monster of Florence worked because Francesco's Vinci's car was found hidden in the woods in the south of Tuscany. And like, why would he have hidden his car if he didn't believe that someone could identify him? So he was taken into custody for further questioning. But like we've seen before, while Francesco was in custody, the monster of Florence struck again. Again, breaking his usual pattern of tacking in the summer. On Friday, a deviance, again from his usual MO, September 9th, 1989, two German tourists were just hanging out in their VW camping van, listening to music when they were attacked. Shots were fired through the window of the van, but because VWs are tanks, the window didn't shatter. The attacker then went to the side and fired shots into the side window before entering the vehicle to continue his attack. But what he didn't realize in the nighttime glow of the moonlight was that it was not a man and a woman sitting in the car. It was actually two men. One of them just had a smaller build and longer blonde hair. The attack gave investigators another clue into the build of their suspect because the windows of the VW vans are higher. And so the direction that the bullets were shot, their suspect was at least 5'10 because he was able to shoot directly in. Oh, cool. Police weren't convinced that this killed or this cleared Francesco Vinci from being their suspect. In fact, it just made them believe that his family had committed a copycat crime in order to try and get him released. What? But because and because of this, police brought in Francesco's nephew Antonio, who was arrested on a weapons charge, followed by Francesco's brother and Antonio's father, Salvatore, for the suspicious death in 1961 of his wife because they all had come um, to move to Italy from Sardinia and um, or moved to the area from Sardinia. Sorry. Uh, I guess there was um, a gas leak that she had died from, but miraculously their one-year-old son was able to get out, but no one got her out. Rough. Yeah. Yep. I see that I see the suspicious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were questioned for three months. No, they maintained their innocence. They denied any involvement. Police also brought in Stefano Mele's brother Giovanni and his brother-in-law Piero because they believed that maybe they could also have been involved because if Barbara's extracurricular activities were like as prevalent as like now they're seeing it was enough to like maybe embarrass the family and they were trying to like help their brother save face. And I really believe with the two of that, like the brother and brother-in-law, they were kind of grasping at straws. They were like, anybody. We got, we got to wrap this up. We look like fools. But like clockwork on a moonless Saturday night on July 29th, 1984, Pia, Rontini, she's 18, and Claudio Stefanacci, 21, were parked in their usual spot in a woodsy area near Florence. The couple was ambushed, and Claudio was fatally, sh- fatally gunned down in a car 
and following Pia being shot, she was drugged out of the car to a nearby area where the murderer took his ritual one step further. After removing Pia's pelvic region, he removed her left breast and took it with him. <gasps> Ew. And I should add, if it wasn't, like, if it's not really clear, if you're like, pelvic region, what, what is happening? He was removing these women's vaginas and taking them with him. Like, they weren't staying there. He was taking them with him. Like, as a trophy, which is, ugh. Ugh, that is, that's awful. Mm-hmm. I hate it. I don't even I th- have, like, insulting enough words to say that. I think I would almost rather pick any other way to go out than that. Oh, that yeah. Is, that's for and sure. And I understand, like, so these it's being done post-mortem, but the the it's I I don't even have words for like the disgusting factor and how like yeah it's see we're just over here muttering and stumbling around because it's just so horrific it's awful that's disgusting this time the murderer also left behind a handprint on top of the car a left handprint not like fingerprints like he had gloves on but this showed police that he was right-handed because he would have steadied himself with his left hand like on the top of the car and used his right hand to commit the crimes. Once again, same bullets, same gun. Same guy. But this brutality was carried out while the police had all of their suspects in custody. So with that, they had no choice but to release all of them. So police felt like they were back to square one. The area was paralyzed in fear. They knew a serial killer was on the loose, but it didn't seem seem like they were any closer to catching him than they were in 1974. And it seemed like he was taunting police by upping his level of brutality. On Sunday, September 8th, 1985, a French couple was camping in a town outside of Florence. 36-year-old Nadine Mariat and 25-year-old Jean-Michel Crevichelli were sleeping in a tent near their car when their attacker cut a slit in the top of the tent. The sound woke Nadine and Jean-Michel up. So, and like what happened is he cut the slit and then he walked around and waited for them to come and investigate the sound that they heard. They were each immediately shot. Nadine was killed instantly after being shot directly in the face. Jean-Michel was a trained sprinter, so he got the hell out of Dodge. He had been shot in the arm, but he took off sprinting to the woods. Unfortunately, because, you know, they didn't know the area, they're tourists. um, He ran the wrong way into the woods, so the murderer was able to catch up with him. No. He caught up with Jean-Michel, and he cut his throat from behind to the point that he almost decapitated him. He then just returned to Nadine's body where he once again removed her pelvic area and took her left breast. Is it just the left one he's taking? Just the left breast. On September 10th, a letter arrived for Sylvia Della Monica, the prosecutor from before. It had cut out letters from a magazine on the front of the envelope to show who it was addressed to. Again, very 
Yeah. <laughs> I, it's just like, <laughs> I know that stereotype came from that time, I think. But yeah, it's just I, such a weird one that it, like, this will get them, this will trick them. I don't know. And it's almost like you have all of these, it's, it's like, is he reading the newspaper and being like, oh, cut out envelope or cut out letters from a magazine? That's, I'm going to do that. Like, what the hell? It's a tedious little job. I don't know. It just always amazes me when they do that. I'm like, why? It's <laughs> okay. so much work. Like, <laughs> And also it ups, to me, it would increase your risk of leaving DNA behind. Like, fingerprints like that's yeah, a, but I, like, at this time they weren't super worried about that like now yeah, yeah that's true no like they're not sending letters to police stations or newspapers anymore because mm -hmm. they're like they're gonna get that tiny little shred of dna off the mm -hmm. corner it's yep. microscopic and find out who you are from your great uncle's kid they would find a fingerprint from one of my kids just touching stuff like <laughs> <laughs> we know who this is there was no letter inside the envelope. Unfortunately, the only thing inside was a sliver of Nadine's nipple. Ew. What the fuck? There yeah. it is. No. Yeah. There was no DNA on the envelope. There was no fingerprints. The killer hadn't licked the envelope. He had just sent a sick trophy to taunt the prosecutor that he believed had tried to best him. Once again, same gun was used, same ammo was used, and some believe that this was a goodbye letter, which leads me to believe maybe they were getting close because following the murder of Nadine and Jean-Michel, there was never another victim of the Monster of Florence or that twenty-two Beretta. In total, he had claimed 14 lives over a 20-year period. What year was that last one? 1985. Whoa. So 68 mm -hmm. to, to 85. 85. Yeah. Almost 20-year period. So there have been numerous theories over time. What happened to the gun? Did it just change hands? And the biggest difference in the first murders and the spree killings from the 70s and 80s was the knife that was used, the mutilation on the, of the female victims. And this is the same guy that carried a boy a mile and dropped him off at someone else's house. Yeah, that's weird. Just like you care about this kid, but not the fact that you just murdered, not enough to know that you just murdered mm -hmm. his mom. I don't know. The gun in the lover's lane scene, that was the same. The bullets were the same. So why did he escalate so much? So before I go into details about another official suspect that the police had, I want to read the FBI BAU's official profile of the suspect because I believe that these details are very important to hear before the next suspect is discussed. The, sus the FBI believes that the suspect was male, about 45 years old, comes from the area of the killings, manual laborer, average intelligence, bachelor, lives alone or with an elderly person, lives near the place of the first killing, has no relations with women and likely has a sexual dysfunction and may use alcohol or drugs to pump himself up for the crimes. Because yes, while the, the 
mutilations are extremely brutal, disgusting. I can't even fathom with the exception of technically the second murder, the murders that happened in 1974 and um, the female victim was violated with the grapevine. There was no evidence of sexual assaults from the perpetrator himself. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, he, like it was always using objects. objects. Correct. In 1985, an anonymous letter came in that told investigators to look into Pietro Pacciani because he was a dangerous, violent man who mistreats his wife and daughters. Police had formed um, what they called an anti-monster squad, which honestly sounds pretty badass. Yeah, that's way cooler than the monster of Florence, honestly. I agree. And they had started for the first time using computer technology to try and catch their guy. So investigators got lists and names from penitentiaries from men who had at some point in their lives been involved in sexually related crimes, but they were all like released during the time that the murders were taking place. After weeding out tons of suspects, one of the names that was left on the list was Petros. Pacciani um, had in 1951, There were reports that there are two reports. One reports that he, um, there was like a traveling salesman and he, this traveling salesman was like going off with Pacciano's girlfriend at the time. And one report says that he bashed the man's head in the other report that he stabbed him repeatedly, either way, brutal, whichever way you look at it. And allegedly like when the couple began to get intimate, he jumped out and, murdered the man and then he raped his girlfriend next to the man's corpse which is fucked oh, up fudged up what the yeah. dickens Ugh. he then stole the man's wallet before leaving he was in prison for 13 years so pacciano or pacciani was um a farm worker he was known to be violent he was arrested put on trial for the murders And when his trial began, it was one of the first ones to be televised all over the area. And it was horrific. Viewers watched in horror as his his daughters and wife described how he physically and sexually abused them. He force-fed them, um, made them eat dog food so he could save money. And even though this case was entirely circumstantial, he was convicted of the murders in 1994. His case went to appeals because the evidence, there was little, little evidence against him. And in 1996, the verdict was overturned and he was freed. Even though he did all that terrible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see. And there are a lot of theories that the police mishandled this case and planted evidence. Evidently, um, there was a notepad and soap dish that they claimed belonged to the German men. A witness believed that they saw a car that looked like his in the area. He lived in the area. And most damning, well, seemingly damning evidence was one lone rusted 22 caliber bullet that was found buried in his vegetable garden. And it is widely believed that the bullet was planted by desperate investigators wanting to put an end to this horror story. So he was ultimately freed for... One, the biggest reason was it is the killer was impotent. He, he was, there was, it was very evident by all of his crimes that 
even though the women were sexually mutilated, there was no, like I said, no evidence of a sexual assault with the exception of the first victim. He would have been, and this man was considered to be oversexed, like had an overactive sex drive. He was um, charged with raping his daughters. Like this is someone who is not, who does not, is as gross as this sounds, is able to perform. He would have been 60 years old at the final attack. And when you see pictures of his stature, it seems highly unlikely that he was able to chase and catch a 25-year-old trained sprinter. There was a second trial in regard to this um, for Pacciani. Well, not for him, but in regards to Pacciani. Because witnesses came forward saying they were present for some of the murders, including his friend, and I use that term extremely loosely, Giancarlo Lotti. He claimed that there were three of them involved and that Pacciani would shoot the victim. Their friend Mario Vanni would use his knife to stab and mutilate the victims. And he was, of course, just simply the lookout. Didn't have anything (laughs) to do with it. I did nothing. I drove the getaway car. He would later confess to being the person who shot the two German tourists. Giancarlo Lotti and Mario Vanni were convicted and sent to prison. And this remains the only trial to result in an upheld in to result in upheld convention convictions in this entire case. And although it is widely believed, like although it's widely believed that Lottie just confessed so he could improve his living conditions because he was like living um, at a halfway house at the time. Mm-hmm. And by going to jail, he would have a place to live three meals a day but before Pacciani could be retried he died of a heart attack oh, yeah but good. he but also he served jail time for what he did to his daughters and his wife he was in prison from 1987 to 1991 which is not enough time that's not enough time not yeah enough that's time. nothing but he was given a reduced sentence partly because uh they believed he was of like uh he had below average of like mental capability who gives it like if you're still you're still a danger to society and the purpose is to remove you from society that you are a danger to i agree another thing that annoys me about these cops is they're like we just want this to be over so you're gonna plant evidence what happens if it comes back you know that's not ending it that's just like pretending that you ended something you didn't end it at all well, and I'm going to talk, I have one more like theory to talk about. And then I'm going to talk about like the lead investigator. They believe that Pacciano, Lottie and Mario Vanni are the people that did this. Like there's no question about it. I just, I'll, my, like the theory that I most believe I'm going to talk about last. Cause I feel like it's the most likely in my opinion. Well, there's, it's one of two likely that I think. So Mario Vanni's attorney, he's one of the men that were convicted with uh, Giancarlo. He believed that the murderer was either a member of the police or someone who pretended to be. Because on a couple of occasions, the registration of the car of the murdered couple was found on the floor of the vehicle 
just under the driver's seat as if it had been taking out to like prove, like to show registration. Mm-hmm. Um, an anonymous witness told him that just before one of the killings, they had seen a suspicious looking police car driving slowly by the area that would later become the crime scene. And he also believed that there was a satanic aspect or cult like element to it. Which brings me to my next theory. Michelle or uh, yeah, Michelle Gutari, he was the police chief investigator from the case on the case from 1995 to 2003. He believes that the entire thing is based off of a satanic cult element. He believed that Pacciani was the killer working with his two friends. He believed that the three actually were like murderers for hire to bring back body parts to someone belonging to the social elite to be used in satanic rituals, black masses, or devil offerings. He believed Illuminati stuff, right? Mm -hmm. He believed that one of the stones that were found at the crime scene confirmed this theory because it was in the shape of a pyramid. And that stone is a symbol used by satanic cults. And to this day, the case remains open to try and find the doctor mastermind behind the whole operation. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's, and I do not believe that. I don't either. And honestly, like the fact that the lead investigator on that thing for like 20 years, you said 95 to 2003? Yeah. Like he was, yeah, he came in afterwards. But he, when they got, when he was investigating, they had mishandled evidence to the point of some of it had like degraded to the point of it couldn't even be like tested, which is like, come on, come on. Yeah. So you remember I was talking about Mario Spezzi. He was the journalist who always reported on the crimes. He has written in total three books about the monster of Florence. He began working with um, American Douglas Preston to co-write the book, The Monster of Florence. Mario Spezzi was going to write it. Preston was going to interpret it to English so it could be released over here. And Spezzi, to me, was the most versed person on this case. He had 20 years of research and theories, and this is what he believes. He believes that the murderer was either Salvatore Vici, he's one of the three brothers, or someone close to him who could have had access to the gun and the bullets. He came to believe that the main, the, the main suspect was the son of one of the brothers, that Salvatore may have committed the first two murders, and then his son continued. So wait, who was Salvatore? I'm sorry, there's a lot of names. Yeah, sorry, through. Salvatore was one of the three brothers that Barbara was having an affair with. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, his name isn't released in the evidence and the article, uh, Preston did an article for, um, let me see the, I think it's the Atlantic. I'm going to link that article. It's very detailed. It is an amazing, like insight to how Preston and Spetsy came across the book and like what happened to them as they were trying to write it, um, I'm not going to give, I mean, you just, you just have to read it. I that could be an entire, like the rest of that could be an entire case on its own, just the book aspect. But so 
he never released, he hadn't released the name of Salvatore's son because at the time it was, the evidence was just circumstantial. But Preston had spent most of it, like a great deal of time in Italy with Spezzi and they together, they've mapped out this whole theory. They interviewed Salvatore's son. And like I said, I'll link the article that Preston wrote because it's great. And I urge you all to check out the book as well. It's very detailed. It gives you all of the information that you need and more. Um, So like I said, he believed that the son was the murderer. He believed that one of the brothers originally committed the murder and that after the son and his father had a huge falling out, seemingly about the father's sexual, like disgusting sexual habits, as the son had said, um, he actually broke into his father's home in 1974 so it's like, how did the gun change hands? Mm-hmm. And they believe that's when the the gun was stolen and the bullets were stolen. He said that him and his father had another big fight and he had pinned his scuba knife to his dad's throat. The scuba knife is the type of knife that was used in all of these murders. Not this specific one, but that type of knife. A scuba knife. A scuba knife. He left Florence in 1975. Coincidentally, the murders had stopped for seven years. He was married, but it was annulled because he allegedly couldn't consummate the marriage. That's what I was going to ask. I was like, if he was having an affair with someone, but he was supposed to be impotent. Mm-hmm. But the son was, allegedly. Okay. He moved back to the area. The murders started again. And this theory was a big deal. When Spetsy posted an article refuting the claim that it was a satanic cult, police shifted their focus, accused Spetsy of interviewing with investigations, accused him. There's a whole other case that's involved with Spetsy and everything. And like I said, I that could be, I mean, I've already been, it's an I've already been talking about this for an hour, and I could go into a whole other area of just a what happened after he wrote that article. He was imprisoned for three weeks. He was treated like a terrorist. Preston was questioned repeatedly and ultimately forbidden to travel back to Italy. He can't go back Don't come back here. You're making us look bad. It's crazy. Like I said, it could be its own case. Um, So, like, are the right men behind bars? Was it a group? Was it a person? Satanic cult? And then, like I said, to this day, even though there has been convictions, this case is still open. Well, that was a lot. Yeah, I have two theories. It is most likely to me that someone involved with the original three brothers committed the first two murders. Like, those were crimes of passion. That's why the boy wasn't murdered. That's why she wasn't, like, sexually defiled, mutilated. It would make sense that someone involved with that group, either someone, you know, like started taking it a step further or, you know, maybe a son could be involved or there is a chance that the police have never interviewed the right person. The police have no idea who this is and it is just one lone psychopath. Why do I think that's what it is? Like, that is, like, my theory. I'm like, I don't think it's any of those people, quite frankly. Because it could have. So it could have been. 
Like, I, I get it. I see the the kid and the crime of passion, but, like, that's just so... The the changing hands and the it was one mm-hmm. person, then it was another person. That's just a lot. Yeah, and for I... For something that stays pretty consistent. It My thought is the first two murders that he committed, maybe that's, like, like that was his first, like, oh, shit, like, what this happened and something happened in that course of the six years between the 1968 and the 1974 murders that escalated that took him to a first like a deeper step because the motive you know like it doesn't change that maybe something happened did he get divorced did something happen with his wife like did you know, did something happen in that time? Did he know that Barbara Lochi was having an affair and it pissed him off because he was married and, you know, type that type of thing? And then it just something happened and it kind of spiraled into like the disgustingness that ensued. <sighs> it's a lot. It is. You better do the ad so that we can continue mm-hmm. discussing this. <laughs> yes. So... Gruesome is a Zencaster-sponsored podcast. Um, It's great if you want an easy-to-use, high-quality recording platform that you need little to no equipment. Zencaster is for you. If you just want to hang out with your friends and you don't want to use other lower-quality sites, head over to Zencaster. You can use... Promo code Gruesome at Zencaster.com slash pricing. That's Z-E-N. C-A-S-T-R dot com slash pricing. Promo code Gruesome with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. It's great. And I love seeing you guys messaging us asking questions on how yeah, to start. Please and what you. I love that. Yeah, it's awesome. We just had a couple today of people being like, hey, what if I just use the free version? I'm like, you should still just do it. Just use the yeah, free version. Don't. Nothing wrong with that. Like, We are never going to be those people like, wait. <laughs> wait. Definitely, if you want to do something, do it. Start it. It doesn't matter if somebody has done it before. They haven't. They didn't have your voice when it happened. So you should yeah. do it. Yep. Now. <laughs> I... I agree. It It's either like someone in that family, which is like really movie-esque. This is actually the inspiration, like the, um, this is the inspiration for Hannibal. Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. that's cool. I do yeah, like, it's like I have said before that I don't really like horror movies, but I do like Hannibal and Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, all of those. Like I thought they were all very cool. It's, and not, I mean, they're gross, but they are cool also. Because they're movies. They're not real life. <laughs> right? I just, I, if it is the same person, something had to have happened between the first murder and the second murder. And even that third murder to, for him to escalate as much as he did. And I, well, I was thinking, I'm like, you know, serial killers normally start, what, early 20s, men, early 20s. And then they mm-hmm. have that gap. And that gap gets shorter and shorter. And I was just like, it makes sense that someone would start it messy and then think about it for seven years and then do it. And then a bunch of it happens a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker. And then it just disappears. And it made me 
think that like maybe his final murders, like Jean Michel sprinting and him like having to having to haul ass to catch him, maybe that was why it was his last murder because he was like, "I'm too getting old too old for this, for this shit." shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just it's wild. This is a wild case. This is a case that after you listen, I really hope that you tell me your theories. If you're like, hey, I'm from Italy and bitch, you are entirely wrong. This is what happened. (laughs) Make sure you tell me that because I love being told how wrong I am. She does. It's her favorite thing. (laughs) That's sarcasm. Don't do it. Save save yourself. Don't do it. (laughs) No, you're already saved because you I have Megan as a buffer. (laughs) <laughs> say what you will uh well that was pretty uh fudged up well i'm going to do a feel good follow-up because this one was brutal okay let's hear it this and this week's feel good follow-up kaylee joy cooper is 17 she lives in los angeles which is why i picked this because we're going to la on wednesday and During the pandemic, she heard people stress the importance of self-care without realizing that their techniques, like, might not be inclusive. And so she said, quote, I'm a firm believer that self-care should not be a luxury. Same, sis. Same. So using her own sweet baby 17-year-old money, she purchased items for 60 self-care kits for girls including books socks jewelry she tucked a handwritten note into each bag letting the recipient know how much she was valued which i get a little teary-eyed even hearing that because like we are you are valued you're beautiful and you're valued several kits went to girls in the foster care system who told cooper that they appreciated having something that belonged to just them which oh And so this inspired her to launch the nonprofit Girl Well, which partners with schools and foster homes in five states to distribute self-care kits. I love to see a successful teenager. That just makes me so proud of her. Snaps for Kaylee. (laughs) Snaps for Kaylee. Good for you, buddy. Yeah. That's awesome. I love, I love instant gratification stories where it's like they did this and it helped immediately. That's awesome. I also saw there was a 500% increase in sea turtle hatchings. (gasps) That's adorable. That made me sorry. Not that that story wasn't cool, but that made me really happy Mm -hmm. because I just really love baby sea turtles. Mm -hmm. That's adorable. And a third one, there was a endangered rhino little baby rhino that was born in i think it was uh check or something like like one of those i think hold on i gotta see it because i found it and i was like this is precious but there wasn't a lot on it i gotta go back to it this week's good sometimes i think about how elephants have to be pregnant for like two full years before they like poop that baby out that's gonna be a no for me dog and that's a that's an alarmingly long time uh in a Czech zoo, an endangered baby rhino was born, and it was named after Kiev. So, snaps Aww. for baby rhinos. Snaps for baby rhinos and baby sea turtles. So cute. So, yeah. That's awesome. Those are both good. Very, very good feel-good um, stories. 
Yes. And if you hear, if you guys are reaching out to us on social media and we're not, and by we, I mean Meg is not as responsive, later in this week, we're going to LA. And (laughs) we have to say it like that. (laughs) LA. And we're going to be Valley Girls for a few days. And I am so excited. We're going to a podcast conference called Podcast Movement. Evolutions. Evolutions. Uh, Podcast Movement Evolutions. Evolutions. So if you have a podcast or you've started one recently and you're going to be there, let us know. Come say hi. Or if you're a company and you're trying to pimp yourself out to us, like, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool, though, if, like, some of the people who have, like, started podcasts, we get to meet them? I think that would be fun. And if you see us in LA and you're like, oh my God, that's Meg and Connie from Gruesome, let us know because my husband's with me or coming with us and he doesn't believe that people listen to us. <laughs> they don't. It's fine. We just, whoa, I almost knocked my computer off my desk. Uh, my desk is an upside down hamper right now for the <laughs> I My office is torn apart because I'm switching office rooms in my house. So I'm just have my computer on an upside down hamper while I'm talking tonight. And see, normally, you can really make a podcast under any circumstances. Yeah, any circumstances. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Zencaster. Thank you. You've done it. You've really done it. Um And honestly, we were I was gonna like we had talked before about like doing something live while we were in LA. And maybe it'll just be at like what the like an Instagram, Instagram live yeah. because your girl is gonna eat in and out until I vomit. I'm gonna watch it happen, and then I'm gonna eat more in and out and sushi and tacos. Oh, we're mostly just excited about the food. Yeah, about and food. to learn that's new- the best part of vacations for me mm-hmm. is like trying new, like trying new food places and getting food. Not me. As soon as I start eating, I love trying it, but it's almost like my stomach's like, where are you? <laughs> where no, are I, you? I like, uh, I, I think I've told the story, but when I went to England, their eating habits are very different. And like I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I like when I go on vacation, I'm like, oh, let's go to breakfast. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to dinner. Um, and they don't do that. For the record. So I was hangry. And we'd been walking around like this beautiful church. It was like a Catholic church all day. And I was hungry and I like snapped at everyone in my group. And I was like, if we don't eat something, I want to go home because I'm done. To America. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to get on a plane and go eat something at home in my house because I'm starving. (laughs) I will never offer to eat first I will go along with it if you say I'm hungry but I will never be I mean with you it's different I'm like I'm hungry but if it's like in a situation like that look normally I'm the same I you you wait until the group is like hey anybody Mm -hmm. feeling like peckish and I'm always like you know what now that you mention it yes I I can eat I could eat. <laughs> but that day, it, that was not me. I was the one that was like, you will feed me or you will suffer the consequences. I would prefer just to pass out from like a hypoglycemic crash. <laughs> no one will ever, I will never make it. I will never inconvenience anyone for my hunger. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like calling my husband from a different room. Like I'm starving. <laughs> I'm thirsty. Uh, yeah, it's please don't ever feel like that with me. If you ever need to tell me like, hey, I'm hungry. Just tell me just be like I'm ready to eat. And that's what, like, when we went thrifting. I was like, I got to eat before we go anywhere else. <laughs> that's all I'm concentrating on. <laughs> I'm just thinking about my stomach yelling at me saying hey snack time man my entire wardrobe well most of it is for la is brought to you by goodwill and i am here for it that's why goodwill is where you can find us i think like that's where our people find us if you're listening and you are the beautiful person who gifted us lululemon gift card and there was one person that did and you know who you are I went to Lululemon today and (laughs) I have to get, I am now solely podcasting for Lululemon leggings. And I've always been like, oh my God, just get the dupe. No. (laughs) Just get the dupe. It's fine. No, I Mm -hmm. am nervous. No, it felt like everything I had ever wanted. And you know what else was great about going there? They were like, hi, Connie. Like, they asked me what my name was and they talked to me and she's like, how are you doing in there? And I was like, well, I'll be honest. I don't know if when I bend over, these are see-through and I'm really nervous. And she's like, well, let's see. She checked it out. and <laughs> let that me know. donkey. Yeah, get her out. <laughs> and she's like, one, you look great. And I was like, don't I? I do. You're right. I do. I do look great. And then I'm, she's like, what you're seeing is like the sheerness. You're, it's not see-through. I see nothing. And I was like, that's what I needed. Shout out to that Lululemon. They obviously mm-hmm. have some like good customer service going on yeah, up in there. Yeah, because the bitch is going back. Like- they used your name and everything. That's cute. That's awesome. I have not used my Lululemon gift card because I am nervous, as I am when I spend anything over $16. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, nope, nope. That makes me uncomfortable. It was a beautiful purchase, and I am so thankful. And uh, I just, honestly, I was shocked, and I haven't gotten a chance to tell you thank you because I am shitty with getting back to people on social media. But it was beautiful, and I'm obsessed. And you have created a monster. Not a monster of Florence, but a monster of Lululemon. And uh, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> can't wait till we do your episode the monster of lululemon <laughs> it would be like uh like a mashup of the monster of florence and the lululemon episode because we both have both. equally brutal they are awful Moof. but i can't think about that because i have packing to do <laughs> that's good i think we should uh get off here and probably go finish packing yeah see you guys next week Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime, a Zencaster-powered podcast. Seriously, we wouldn't be here without them. Zencaster is simple to use and makes it easy to edit your own podcast. Zencaster gives you automatic, high-quality post-production sound, transcription, and HD video recordings of all of your episodes. If you want to start a podcast, and we think you should... Click the link in the show notes or at our website and use the code GRUESOME with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. 
We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 